And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the, le <clears throat> the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, <clears throat> and saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. All right, so the uh, ones who were crucifying Jesus, using their uh, authority to commandeer local labor, made a uh, Cyrenian man named Simon to carry the cross. Basically, soldiers can force a bystander to go with them a mile and or so in any direction, carrying whatever they want them to. So Simon was actually the one who carried the cross. They reached the place outside the city wall named Golgotha, or Calvary, which actually means what? Skull. Place of a skull. And there's two <laughs> theories as to why it was named that. The old traditional theory is that because it was shaped like a skull, so it was probably like a hill. Uh, I think the more likely explanation is they crucified a lot of people there, so they had a lot of skulls there. Uh, if, if the first one's right, then it's true that he was crucified on Mount Calvary or on the hill of Calvary. If my idea is right, we have no idea whether it was a hill or a valley or what. You know, maybe you could argue that they would have been more likely to have crucified somebody on a hill so that more people could see it from a distance and so it'd be more of a, you know, uh, deterrent to crime. So maybe so. But we really don't know the landform right there. Uh, if, if in fact this means that they just crucified a lot of people there. So Calvary is another name for it? Yeah, uh, Calvary's I think the Latin for the Greek or something like that. Am I right? I think so. Okay. And they give him this wine mixed with gall to drink that he refuses. And there's various schools of thought on that. Some people think that they gave it to him to kind of torment him. I think it may be a better explanation that this would have been kind of like a narcotic that was kind of an act of mercy, you know, given to somebody to uh, dull the pain a little bit. You know, uh, no cruel and unusual punishment for the Romans. Uh, but Jesus wanted to experience every bit of the cup, drink it fully in full consciousness. I, I think that's a better explanation. I don't think we know for sure. That's uh, Some of that's uh, a little bit conjectural. Did they always do that I don't think we know that. I, that's a theory. I think that's possible. But I think all of this is kind of, you know, we're kind of making deductions and assumptions. I think it's a reasonable assumption, but I don't think we have proof of that. Probably, I mean, if it was somewhat of a, a narcotic, it would, I don't want to say calm them down, but you're getting ready to drive a spike through someone and after the first one they're going to be a little bit combative perhaps <laughs> you know maybe that's yeah. 
a little bit much, but yeah. Yeah, maybe so. I hadn't thought about that. Could More be compliant. Yeah, could be. Then it wears off, and hey, back to your cruel and unusuals. Yeah. <laughs> what are the soldiers doing as Jesus hang is hanging there in agony? Gambling. Well, yeah, I don't know if we call this exactly gambling, but they're basically drawing straws to see who gets what piece of clothes. You know, they're 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 sort of, you know, dividing up Jesus' clothes among them. I mean, they get kind of whatever the guy has. You know, that's kind of their little, uh, you know, I guess so. Would you call that a uh, little tip for them? And uh, so, but it just it, what a contrast, you know. Oh, they're just kind of uh, figuring out who gets what, you know, while Jesus is hanging there in agony. It just seems so trivial and so, like, unconcerned about what was really going on. And it makes you think about how little Jesus had. I wonder what happened to the rest of his estate. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I think we can assume there was no rest of the estate to uh, be left to anyone. I mean, Jesus just didn't ever have anything. As far as we know, particularly after he started his ministry, you know, so, wow, it's just kind of, uh, and it kind of makes you realize, I don't know whether they let him have a loincloth on the cross or not, possibly, possibly not, but other than that, at least, he's naked. You know, just kind of, well, I mean, this would be gross anyway, but it's kind of, you know, humiliating and just, wow. I mean, you think about, there's a lot of things to think about, you know, Crucifixion, I mean, it's so, so agonizing. But you can't swat a fly. I mean, you're just up there totally mer at the mercy of any element, anything. You know, you can't do a thing. And, and you know, it's just been really, I think, hard to, man, hard to live through that. Um, and uh, they put over him the charge, you know, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It's amazing how many true things are said about Jesus, sort of without intending for them to be true. I mean, Pilate seems to put this up from some of the other Gospels, just kind of get a dig at the Jews, you know. But it's true, whether he knew it was or not, you know. And, and, and this would have been the place we'd have put in the accusation against the criminal. So he's accused of being the king of the Jews, you know. It's kind of an unusual criminal charge. Um, and... Uh, you know, you've got the the robbers who were crucified with him. Um, you know, one on the right, one on the left. You know, so Jesus is right there in the middle of a couple of of you know criminals. Um, he's clearly that's the way he's being portrayed. He's kind of the middle criminal. Um, comments and questions through verse uh, thirty-eight. Would they what? always have gone <coughs> cast lots to get the clothes from? I think they've been pretty typical. So for they would have been doing the same thing maybe for the criminals on either side? Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm assuming that this was not just Jesus, but that they would, the soldiers kind of, that's kind of part of their compensation. And would it just be what they were wearing? And I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if somebody had had an estate, certainly the soldiers aren't going to get that. But, but I mean, they take clothes off of them before they nail them on. The, um, I seem to recall reading someplace with that the two were the two robbers what that the 
were they also like more than just people who broke into somebody's house and stole something? Well, I don't think we really know much about this, but you're assuming they weren't shoplifters. <laughs> yeah. You know, that would seem overkill. But I don't think, does anybody know, I don't think we got any real detailed information on what they did. You know, we know a little bit more about Barabbas and what he did. Right, because a murderer and a insurrectionist. But that it was, it was, but the, although I guess even, I don't think of it like that too much, but robbery would be a violent crime, so it's not just shoplifting. Right. And don't expect Roman law to be the same as Jewish law. Right. I mean, the Jews would not have executed a, a thief, you know, unless you were a kidnapper, if you can call that a thief. Mm -hmm. But as far as property crimes, the law of Moses did not uh, authorize capital punishment for property crimes. Uh, but that doesn't mean the Romans don't. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, look at what's happening starting in 39. You've got several different groups that are mocking Jesus like the passers-by in 39 and 40, and what are they saying? You're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it, and if you're the Son of God, yeah. save yourself. Yeah, taunting him. And, but the truth is, he was the temple. And he was, it was his, his body was going to be rebuilt in three days. It's the place where God dwelt. The truth is, he was the Son of God. You know, they, they are speaking true things without realizing it, without understanding it. And then in 41 to 43, who's mocking him? Chief priests and elders and scribes. So the Jewish leaders, and they say he saved others, he cannot save himself. They're right. He's the savior of men. <laughs> they didn't mean it that way, but that's true. He, was, he did. He is the king of Israel. Yeah, they're right. Now they are saying that in irony, but the truth is he is. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. You know, well if he had come down from the cross, there wouldn't have been much to believe in and it wouldn't have been worth much. You know, it's interesting. He, he, when they say he saved others, he can't save himself. Well, the truth is he could have saved himself, but if he had, he wouldn't have been saving others. You know, there's so many ironies in these things. Uh, and of course, if he had come down from the cross, would they have believed in him? Rose from the dead three days later didn't seem to help. Huh. You know, it's easy to say things like that, isn't it? You know, he trusts in God, let God deliver him now. You know, if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. You know, again, you think about how, you know, just how much of a temptation it would be to lose your temper if you're Jesus on the cross. You know, and just to, you know, wow, do something to them. But that, of course, wasn't Jesus' spirit at all. You know, it's interesting, this whole thing, uh, many of these mockeries are based on the assumption that what God does not do, he cannot do. Just because God does not do something doesn't mean he can't do it. But a lot of times wicked people assume that. Um, You're saying, like, save himself from the cross. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the fact that God doesn't rescue him doesn't mean God couldn't. It means that God chose not to so that he could save us. 
So they're almost suggesting that their unbelief was Jesus' fault. <laughs> and the fact that he didn't come down and he didn't do this or that, that's the reason they don't believe. Of course, we're always excusing our own unbelief for some reason or other. Or they're just assuming that that's what God would do. If you're really God, then come down. Of course. And so they're just got a wrong premise. Absolutely. They do. <clears throat> and then in 44, what group is uh, mocking him? The robbers. The robbers themselves. Though from Luke, I assume that one of them had a change of heart later. But right here, the passers-by, the religious leaders, and the robbers are all mocking Jesus. He's pretty much not got a friend right here. Not in these groups, anyway. All right, comments and questions on all that. Forty-five to fifty-six. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there, when they heard it, began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the, to and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Several key events, the darkness from noon to three in the afternoon. Um, this was a dark hour. Jesus was bearing man's sins on the cross. And then Jesus cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would Jesus say that? Why would he think that? Well, the part about God forsaking him is true. Like, in the sense that he's turning his back on him. Well, why would God do that? Because he's bearing sin. I think that's right. I think the hardest part of Jesus' suffering was the fact that he experienced the punishment man's sins deserve. Now what's the punishment for sin? Separation from God. Yeah, death in the sense of separation from God. So if Jesus took our punishment as our sin bearer, he had to be separated from God. So I think Jesus goes through something on the cross that we can't even begin to understand because we'll never have to experience it as long as we're in Christ. And I think this was the worst thing that happened to Jesus. Now, not everybody agrees anymore. That, that this idea is being challenged more and more. Because, and a lot of, well, I think there's a lot of reasons why it's being challenged. But people are often saying, well, this is Psalm 22.1, which it was. 
And they're trying to say that, well, Jesus really wasn't referring to this part of the psalm. He's referring to later on the psalm, and it's really a cry of victory, because Psalm 22 ends in victory. Well, it's really hard to understand how Jesus would cite words like this to mean just the opposite. You know, I'm not saying Jesus would never cite a passage and be including some thoughts from the context, but to be be meaning the very opposite of what the verse says that he quotes. And I don't know that we ought to see this as a quotation as much as expressing his thoughts in Old Testament language. You know, I don't know about that. But I, I mean, I'm not sure we're locked into him necessarily so much saying this to be quoting as this expressing what his feelings were. So I think this is a sign that Jesus really did experience being God forsaken on the cross because he was experiencing the punishment our sins deserve. But we still have some separation from God when we sin now. Yes and no. Yes, because we're not truly in fellowship with God when we sin. Sin is a barrier between us and God. But we live in a, in a world where God is present. You know, God sends the rain, the sun, and so forth on everyone. We can't get away from the presence of God here on this earth. We are, you know, even though we may not be in direct fellowship with God, we are in a world that God has blessed greatly. Okay, thoughts about that? So the, uh, the, one of the other interpretations that I've read of this is that he said, he quoted this particular passage because that's what it looked like was happening. Is that... I, I, it looked like he was being forsaken. That's what the appearance was. Eh. Yeah, that, I mean, I think to express that is to refute it. You know, wow, that's weird. <laughs> you know, why would you express what something looked like in your cry? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. I, I, to me, that doesn't need a refutation. <laughs> I, I think we... Sometimes we have preconceived reasons not to want to accept the obvious. I don't have any of those preconceived reasons. I don't see, a, I don't see any problem with this view. Uh, some people would say it's Calvinistic and all that. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of like, well, what if you found out Calvin believed in the Trinity, which he did. <laughs> so is believing in the Trinity Calvinistic and we ought to be Unitarian? You know, or something like that. I mean. Almost every false teacher believes in things that were true. <laughs> you know, we don't just avoid those because he teaches false about some other things. So. Well, what happened uh, as Jesus died? What happened in the temple? The veil torn in two. Yes. Who tore it? Yeah, it's torn from top to bottom. I think the idea is it's initiated from heaven. Well, that's what. What does that mean? It's amazing to me that a lot of commentators even don't understand what that means. <laughs> but, That's silly. but this, I think this ought to be pretty obvious. <laughs> I mean, what's the function of the veil in the tabernacle, in the temple? To keep 
people away from God. <laughs> Absolutely, because God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Why did they need to keep people away from God? They would die if they... Why? It's a sin. Absolutely. Well, when Jesus sheds his blood to forgive men's sins, he's taken away the barrier and enabling man to have full fellowship with God. So the veil is rent. We now have access to the presence of God. You know, uh, to me, that's, that's, you know, that's how it's used in Hebrews 10. And, uh, you know, it's very meaningful, I think. Uh, it's only through Jesus that there is a way into the presence of God. If it weren't for what he did, we could none of us have that kind of close fellowship with God. Commentators on Matthew and not Hebrews. <laughs> Maybe so. I thought about that. I don't know. It's just amazing sometimes that people, you know, don't look at at maybe the more clear and obvious view of things. What what would they say about it? You know, sometimes people will say that this is like abolishing the old covenant and things like that. Well, I certainly agree that the Old Covenant was abolished when Jesus died, but I don't think that's really the point of tearing the veil. So. And this was a literal tearing of, I think it was. of the veil in the temple. What I think it was. Tearing? Wouldn't that be kind of spooky? That well, would be like <laughs> seriously I can't do a tearing weird sound. <laughs> <laughs> got a tearing sound, that's better. And then all of a sudden you can see in there. Uh, yeah. That would be like, because it's like, I can't look there. That's what I'd be scared. I'd be like, I know, we need to fix this. But how do they fix it without going <laughs> into the Holy Spirit? Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they did fix it. They probably did, yeah. But did they like take it down for reconstruction? <laughs> I mean, like, close for maintenance. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, there were times when the temple was reformed and uh, re- what do you say? Refurbished. Refurbished, that may be a good term. I've been studying the divided kingdom a lot recently. I mean, Joash did that, Josiah did that. They put up some scaffolding. And they like, cleaned it and everything. And well, yeah, they found the book of the law in uh, Josiah's day that I guess had been hiding out in a place nobody was bothering to look, you know, <laughs> the house of God. <laughs> These pictures, you know, you see the models of the temple, and there's nothing in there except the table and the lampstand. And the, you know. So, where was the book? Was the table the <laughs> it's under the table. Oh, it's yeah. under the table. Yeah. There's also a lot of side rooms and stuff. Yes, exactly. I suppose we're talking about the temple complex. But yeah. <laughs> It's an empty room. How do you lose that? <laughs> and wouldn't there have been like a lot of dust in like the most holy place? Because like, yeah. yeah, nobody goes in there. I guess other than God, maybe God dusted it. <laughs> I've never really smoke. given any thought to Everything the dust in the most holy smoke place. Covered, yeah. Smoke covered, blood covered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I know. And then the dead people in there. Because if they went in there. <laughs> Like if the priest went in there unconsecrated? Well, I'm assuming they, they didn't. And then they started putting strings on their feet, so if they died, right, they, they could, could be pulled out. Yes. But that didn't ever happen, did it? I don't think so. Not that I know about. I don't know. Oh, I just assumed that since they started putting strings on their feet that somebody died. Wow. Yeah. That'd be bad. You <laughs> wouldn't just step over the they dead body. Really, I guess I thought they died because they were doing something sinful. 
Yeah, like they yeah. wanted. Then they dropped dead. Right. I think okay. that's what she said. Okay. Yeah. They went in, they did something displeasing to God and dropped on the spot, and suddenly the little bells aren't tinkling anymore, <laughs> so they have to drag the body out by the rope on his We don't ankle. read of that ever happening. Right, that, exactly. We don't even read about them putting the string on their foot, do we? No. That is, that, I think that's uh, you know, historically yeah. true in later Judaism. Well, didn't know we were going to get into all that. I thought we'd get into all of 52 and 53, which is really exciting. Wow. The tombs were open, and, and, and these bodies of dead holy people came out, came out of the tomb after Jesus was raised, came into Jerusalem, and saw a lot of folks. Wow. Who would have ever thought that would have happened? It really shows you how death has been conquered in Jesus' death and resurrection. For whatever strange reason, this reminds me of something in the Old Testament. Actually, I think it's not strange. I think this is, uh, I've gotten to thinking a little bit more about this, and I believe this is a foreshadowing. What would you see as the foreshadowing of this in the Old Testament? Ezekiel, Well, I hadn't thought about that. So, That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not thinking of that. Elisha's dead body touching the bones of somebody. Yeah, the bones of somebody that's thrown into Elisha's grave suddenly. Oh. Yeah, he touches the bones and he comes back to life. I, and Elisha is definitely a, a, a foreshadowing of Jesus. So I suspect that that's kind of the foreshadowing of this. Where's but anyhow, this is really cool. Where's that reference? That is 2 Kings 13, verse 20 and 21, I believe. Um, and this is like all that's said. Yeah, that's all we know about this. And that's just bizarre. What's well, cool? Well, it's still bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> well, one, they couldn't be happy about this. <laughs> and like, would you want to be happy if you were raised to come back here after that? Well, there's a lot of things we don't know about this. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not personally assuming that they like then went ahead and lived another twenty years or something. Yeah, I'm assuming they made an appearance in Jerusalem and got exited back to the uh, place of the dead. That's what I'm assuming. I, know, I wondered, like, if they I thought they stayed alive for a while, like that's Lazarus. Not, that's not been my assumption. And if so they, they didn't, that's just really creepy that they just walked in and then walked out like it's like some. It's cool, isn't that it's creepy? Like that just really shows you the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection. I mean, we're already getting a sample of what's going to happen one day. One day, all the tombs are going to be open like that, and all the bodies are going to come out. That's amazing. I mean, can you imagine that happening? It's just hard to imagine. I mean, you wonder if we'll be alive. You know, I mean, there is a chance. Uh, especially, you know, I mean, the younger you are, I guess the bigger the chance. But, uh, <laughs> but can you imagine, guys? I mean, you know, one day... You're doing whatever you're doing, and all of a sudden there's the trumpet sound and this shout from the archangel, and all of a sudden, just all the tombs everywhere are just opened up, and these bodies come up out of them, and and you know are raised up to be with the Lord, and then next thing you know, before you got a chance to think, your body's suddenly being transformed, and you're being caught up there. That'd be cool. That's the information we've got. 
So I think this is just kind of a, a preliminary, you know, little glimpse into what that'll be like. Comments and thoughts? Well, when the centurion saw, you know, there was an earthquake that, that had shaken this, these tombs open, and uh, he saw all these things happening, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Isn't it amazing? It's a Roman centurion that realizes who this was. It's kind of uh, remarkable. Not the first time in Matthew that a Gentile has correctly interpreted the situation. Think about the wise men. Think about that centurion who says, don't even bother to come under my roof in Matthew chapter 8. And the women were looking on from a distance. Um, so. Now often, I just now realize, they didn't come out of their tombs till after Jesus rose. That's correct, yes, so that's correct. So the centurion... Yeah, the, the earthquake opened the tombs, but then they came out after Jesus was raised. So did the centurion say this after Jesus was raised? No, I don't think so. I think he just sees the earthquake. Maybe he, I don't know, he may have known the, the tombs got opened, but I think only after Jesus was raised are the bodies actually raised and come out of the tombs. But you think the centurion said this on the day that Jesus died? I do, yes. Because there were a lot of kind of weird things going on. There were. <clears throat> including just Jesus' whole demeanor and all that on the cross. I remember reading one thing about the, in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And typically, hmm. when you've been on the cross for pretty much any length of time, you're not going to have a lot of strength That's or, true. or ability to cry out, to yell, to shout, to speak in a loud, firm voice. You're struggling to breathe the whole time. Right. Um, so that in and of itself... Interesting point would it be unusual for a victim of crucifixion to to do that and then just die, basically. Mm -hmm. Good point. I hadn't thought about that. Other thoughts? 57 to 66. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given over to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, which is the one after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Well, what do you know? There's this Joseph guy. We really learn quite a bit about him as you compare the Gospel accounts. Here we know he was a rich man from Arimathea. And uh, he had become a disciple of Jesus. From other accounts, we learn he was a secret disciple and a member of the Sanhedrin. He comes to Pilate and asks for Jesus' body. Now, isn't, doesn't he have an interesting name? It was Joseph who buries him. Think about Joseph's role at Jesus' birth. 
You know, Jesus is with a Joseph when he comes into the world and when he leaves the world. And he puts Jesus in his own tomb hewn into a rock and rolls a large stone against the entrance of the tomb. And a couple of these Marys are sitting there watching all this happen. They knew exactly where Jesus was buried. The next day, which is like the Sabbath day, which is like the day they're not supposed to do anything according to their tradition, they go to Pilate and say what? be a problem here. <laughs> his disciples, uh, he said he was going to come back in three days, so his disciples are probably going to steal the body, and then we've got more problems. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What they feared, that there would be a great deception, is actually what they themselves perpetrated <laughs> at the end. You know, that that's not hypo hypocritical. And they actually, by putting the guard in place, give one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection. Man, they just end up shooting themselves in the foot or maybe the heart or something by doing this. And it's interesting, it looks to me like by doing this on the Sabbath day, they're violating their own traditions. But I think when it comes to the opposition to Jesus, everything's okay. Um... um. I was just thinking that, so it's evening, and if it's after 6 p.m., then it is, technically speaking, the next day. That's so, correct. So they could, they would have, would have, could have done this right at the beginning of the Sabbath, still on what we would call Friday, and, I mean, it, it's still the Sabbath, so they still had issues, but... That um, that almost makes more sense than waiting until the next day to have. Yes, it may have been. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. The guard put in place. Yeah. So. Could be. Is it right? They, you know, they see it better than the disciples did. The disciples never figured out that Jesus said he was going to be raised from the dead because they never believed he'd be killed. But the enemies have listened to him long enough. They realize he's predicted his resurrection. They want to make the sure, sure that the disciples don't, you know, manipulate this into making it look like there was one. But they can't overcome the power of the Son of God, not by stone, not by seal, not by guard. Comments and questions? None, none of the other stuff has phased them at all. Three hours of darkness, that's kind of weird, but... You know, the veil was torn in two, there was a big earthquake right when he died, but they still go to Pilate. <laughs> We need a guard on this here too in case something something else strange happens. Yeah. Do you think they had all expected him actually? Well, surely not. I don't know. I mean, if so, what in the world were they thinking? How in the world is a guard going to stop? No, what is he going to do? Kill him again? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, so they were they were thinking about the apostles coming and and making it look like he'd been raised yeah. stealing the body and then proclaiming the resurrection yeah so they were going to keep the disciples from stealing it right exactly and is this a it's a roman guard i think it was 
I think I think Pilot is saying, you know, I'm granting you a guard. Use it how you want to. They didn't need to have Pilot's permission if they were using their own guards, it seems to me. They were answerable to Pilot if this should come to the governor's ears, well, you know, to speak on your behalf. So I, I and the and the tomb was well, I, I just think it's more likely it's a Roman guard. Mm. So what does he mean when he says you have a guard? I think he's he's granting a request. Okay, you go. You've got you've got my guard. Okay. You, you know. He's not saying you already have a guard. You right. It, uh, I think he's saying, you know, I'm granting this request. You have the guard you're asking for. And we don't know we don't know specifically how many people that would have entailed. I, I, I mean, I know I've read about the Roman guard and, you know, a squad of 16 or whatever and how well they would be able to defend pretty much anything. The way they were trained, you know, to fall asleep was a capital offense. Well, and you would just think, I mean, tell me the disciples are going to overcome nearly any Roman guard. I mean, they couldn't, Peter couldn't overcome a slave girl. <laughs> you know, good grief. I think it just shows that so much of what you believe depends on you and not on the <laughs> things that you see or, I don't know, and it kind of goes the other way too, like we don't get to see the signs and so some ways it's like oh well we're kind of deprived you know like we didn't get to see those miracles and those in that evidence but it's like well they saw it and they didn't believe so right. absolutely it really is you more than anything else people all the time say if i could have only seen it if i could have only seen it yeah well the people who did most of them didn't believe right so not sure it made much difference i mean typically we would really prefer something in writing over nearly anything else as far as evidence value. <laughs> we have the gospel in writing, people say, well, I, I, we wish we had it, you know, acted out. You know, we're never satisfied. <laughs> anything else? Okay, so chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred.